Welcome to the NSCA Coaching Podcast, Season 6, Episode 21. We have so many elements that we're trying to account for and so many things that we're trying to figure out. And there's, I don't want to dumb down our program. I don't want to remove the nuance. I don't want to remove the variables that make this thing special. But I do know the more things that we have to account for, the more things we have to hold ourselves accountable. This is the NSCA's Coaching Podcast, where we talk to strength and conditioning coaches about what you really need to know, but probably didn't learn in school. There's strength and conditioning, and then there's everything else. Welcome to the NSCA Coaching Podcast. I'm Eric McMahon. Today, we're joined by Tim Karen, co-founder and head strength and conditioning coach at Allegiant Gym in the LA area. Tim has experience working at Georgia Tech, USC, and Army football, now working in the private sector. Tim, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me on. And we go way back, back to Springfield College. This is we good do. connecting with you, man. And uh, now you're on the West Coast. Pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, man. Yeah, man. It's been a um, cool journey. Uh, it's kind of crazy to think all the way back. It kind of shows our age too, right? Like of uh, <laughs> 2005, 2006-ish. Like, oh my goodness, man. You talk yeah. to the young strength coaches. I, I have so many young guys who are working for me now. And I'm like, Oh yeah, you you just graduated from college in 2023. Like, wow, almost 20 years ago now. I graduate. I got my master's degree. You know, like it's <laughs> it's wild to think about how old we are now, man. Time flies, and there's always a few stops along the way. Mm -hmm. uh, Want to hear about Allegiant? You have a really cool setup there. I see your social media, and you uh, just came out with a book. We can talk about that in a second. But uh, what kind of clientele do you work with at Allegiant? So the original, so the original construct was a couple of athletes of mine reached out to me and said, Hey, how would we recreate our college experience on our own in the, like the normal everyday world? And I was like, you know, and you're, you've been a, you've been a strength coach where former athletes hit you up all the time. Like, can you write me a program? And, you know, actually it's been really cool to talk to some other strength coaches in the past, like two, three years since the pandemic of they've kind of gotten savvy and wise about how do I monetize this? So it's, it's cool to hear that, but it was always a recurring theme of like, oh man, I don't have the time, nor is it my concern to kind of write your program or you send them a program and they don't do it. So I was like, this would be a really cool thing if we could kind of create a gym concept that was centered around athletes when they're done playing, because they have a higher expectation and standard you know, if we do our job right. So they're the models, they're the archetypes. And we opened up our first location in 2017. And we've been rolling since, man. Third location just opened up last October. And still same mantra. It's like, where do athletes go when they're done training? But the, the second order of that is we're getting really cool and interesting people that are really motivated, really incentivized to get great results, have a high expectation and standard from their training that come in and maybe they don't play sports at a high level, or maybe they played high school sports, or maybe they're just really into hardcore training and, and really like the professionalism and the standard that we held. So really coming back down to it, it's just like we would treat every single weight room session that we have as college or team or in a team setting, just par parlayed to everyone we're dealing with in a general population setting. And it's amazing to see people like look at it like, this is one of the best things I've ever seen and kind of goes into we got some of the best kept secrets in the team setting. Just no one really talks about it or knows about it. And it's kind of a saddened to me that like, you walk in like, Oh, by the way, I was a head strength coach at division one level working with a, you know, one of the most historic programs in all of the country. And I worked at these institutions and like, I really don't know why that's relevant or important to me. Like 
no one really <laughs> thinks about that. Like, and it's a great big world out there and we're kind of in our cocoons and locked in. And we have some of the most amazing strength and conditioning coaches that are doing their job of serving 12 to hundred athletes or all their sports and not really getting much limelight or credit for it. But the world really needs to know that the best strength conditioning or the best coaches in our industry as a whole are kind of the best kept secret within this. Right. And there's a lot of people who have a lot more notoriety and influence that honestly can't shake a candle. Some of the folks I worked with and seen on a daily basis in the college and team setting. College sports, typically that four year, five year window with athletes and then it ends. And we don't really think about what happens afterward. I know in the football world, sometimes we talk about offensive linemen, you know, trying to drop weight after their last competitive season and kind of a transition into life. That's probably the closest I've seen to collegiate strength coaches thinking about what happens after, after their last year of eligibility. What does training look like for athletes in years five, six, seven, eight, or, or even older, you know, and they still have that competitive mindset. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, what's interesting off that too. And I know we're going to talk a little bit about sports science. We get a lot of questions on why we do force plate on people or Nordic hamstring assessment or grip test or RP wellness, or just tracking frequency, tracking intensity, tracking bar speed. You know, it comes into like, Hey, if I was going to train a person who makes a million dollars plus a year to play a sport, why would I just arbitrarily decide to change my standard for someone who's trying to do this three, four days a week? Like if that is the standard that we want to be great, and this is what we would do the best in the world, why would that all of a sudden change for a general population person? Like what, why would that, like, if it's important here, why wouldn't it be universally important? You know, and I just found that like something to me of like a really difficult question for a long time of, well, that's the standard. I know I have the burden of knowledge, you know, that's how you train the best in the world. So I'm going to train you the exact same. Cause that's the why, the way I do it. And that's, I think that's what you should strive for. And yeah, resources and all the things that you need to acquire over the time. Cause you're paying out of pocket. It takes a long time and you gotta be convincing and compelling with your business partners who are like, Hey, we're going to take away from our actual profit margins. How is this going to make us more money? And then on the other end, it's like, well, it's going to, it's the right thing to do because we're going to have really good results and people are going to be safe. And they'll stay with us a really long time. And as it kind of unfolds and everything else, you know, the thing that you kind of just mentioned there of like, you know, that offensive lineman that's done playing, like, hey, the things that we did to help that person go from 220 to 300, hopefully with good nutrition, good training, consistency, you know, just coaching, right? Like just, hey, every morning, like, hey, what do we eat for breakfast? What are we doing for lunch? What are we doing for dinner? Invert that, right? And going back into like, hey, I know we just told you for the past four years, we got to get 80 pounds on you. Now we got to go the opposite direction. Like, all right, what do we eat for breakfast? What do we eat for lunch? What do we eat for dinner? Like, hey, are we doing any extra caloric expenditure work today? We're going to go for a long walk. Like the stuff that we instinctually do because we think it's the right thing to do is the same thing that we should be doing with general populations. The only difference is, is we don't have Saturday to kind of justify this. Where I see it differently. I see it now. I don't have Saturday. I have a person that's coming in three to four times a week for 52 weeks a year for multiple years on end. And those case studies that we have are endless. Like we have so many people from our first year just from striving to do the same things that we're doing on a daily basis in the team setting just here. And it resonates. People care because they know how much you care. So going into the training process, we obviously have the weight room, but we also have movement skills and the conditioning piece. 
Do you focus a lot on movement skills, speed work, like you would in a college setting with this general population? So this is a that this is this is a very big question because this is something I think too. I know there's probably going to be some folks out there who listen to this. Like, I'd like to do that. I'd like to bet on myself, open up my own facility. Here's the thing: space costs money. Space costs a lot of money. Something that has a require a large skill or a large amount of like space is a lot of money. You're thinking about a turf area that's 30 yards or 60 yards in length, like we see in a lot of college or team setting weight rooms. It's a lot of HVAC. That's a big footprint. That's a lot of stuff that unless you can justify that cost, it's really going to be hard to get in there. And you look at what the usually outlet of that is, right? So you see a lot of these mega centers. What does it look like most of the day? It's a lot of renting out to soccer clubs and baseball teams and places to hit and do stuff in the off season. And then you run into this really big kind of conflict point like hey we opened a facility to train athletes to do all their speed agility all of their strength and conditioning everything that's acquired to help an athlete prepare for the off season but the only way we can keep the lights on is if we actually go ahead and rent this out to several other organizations and teams right and then that comes into this like paradoxical thing of like i have this space that i could do so much stuff with it but i can't do it because i can't really afford to keep it open with that what I would come back and say is, we knew we wanted to work with general populations. And I said, what is the absolute thing? If I had Eric in front of me and I said, Eric, what do you want from me? And if you start going a mile a minute, like, well, I really wanna work on weightlifting or I really wanna work on speed development or I've been watching this guy online and he's doing a lot of movement stuff. I'd really like to do that. What would you want from that? Well, I just kinda of wanna do that. Well, what would you say if you left here in a year, you didn't get why you'd be upset that you weren't here for a year and you didn't get? I guess when you really break it down and want to look better and not feel like crap, like that's simple, right? Like bottom line, general populations, you, me, everyone else walking around, like I want to look better. I don't want to spend a long time doing it. I don't want to feel like crap to get it. Okay. What can I, what can I absolutely have? What do I absolutely need to be able to do that? Barbells, dumbbells, kettlebells, racks. And I need to organize that in a certain way. That's not only built for great results, but sustainable. All right. So I have this base program. It's a three-day total body program that leverages barbells, kettlebells, dumbbells. I get really creative with the way we adjust the variables between sets, reps, tempo, rest periods, exercise order. And we do that in a way that's compelling and interesting. We don't make things more provocative. We make things that are very common and very, very fundamentally sound more interesting. And we really lean in on that. And then we test ourselves. We objectively evaluate whether we're getting you looking better. It's really pretty simple, a body composition analysis. And then on the other end, if we're not feeling like crap. And I can see that two ways. One, if we have a tremendous long list of injuries, which we see every single day, week or month, or I can see how many times a week you're coming in. If you're coming in three days a week, probably means you're either getting great results or you're not feeling like crap. And that's the way I evaluate our program. So you break it down from that. Like, yes, it'd be nice to have a 60 yard turf when that one NFL guy calls me next off season and says, I really wanna work out with you this off season. That'd be sweet. I'll be honest, it'd be really nice. And we're not to tell the guy, hey, by the way, we can't really do much with you. And on top of it, you're going to have to work around everyone else's schedule. On the other note, though, it's I can keep our lights on. I can make a make an actual make a profit. And God forbid we actually have a business that makes money. and We don't have stuck into this like small business purgitude. I can pay our coaches. I can provide a high quality training center experience for more people. We can grow our business now into other locations. So to answer your question, it's a very long winded 
roundabout way of doing it. Financially, it's like, I got to be disciplined, very, very responsible overhead. Like, what do we need? And then a manageable operating budget. Like, what do we absolutely need to spend on a monthly basis to make this thing work? And how do we get great results without compromising the true values of strength and conditioning and getting people hurt just for the sake of doing things that they want or that looks cool or interesting? Probably a very small footprint with some racks, dumbbells, kettlebells, and then we kind of go to work. Um, so no, we don't have a lot of that stuff and we're not really doing a whole <laughs> lot of that. And like, here's another little note too, like when you're looking for leases, and this was maybe five, six years ago when we first started looking at it, like there was a stigmatism around certain philosophies and you see it, like you see like, ah, are you going to do a lot of dropping of weights? Are you going to send your clientele running around the block? They were like, no, nah, we don't want that customer. Cause it's a, cause like it's a big issue. Cause especially in Southern California, we got asked at every single time, are you this model? And we were like, no, not really. But you see us put bumper plates in there. And then we're like, could we do this in the bottom floor of a 40 story office building? And if we did weightlifting, like snatch, clean and jerk, and we're having a bunch of people drop in these like bookend days, or sometimes in the middle of the day, we're probably going to get kicked out and evicted. So what we had to do was re-strategize here. Like, okay, what is that thing that's going to get people looking better and have them be able to do it for a long period of time? Squat, bench, hinge, and push, right? Like that, very simple, like go back to Bill Starr. It's going to make people look better. It's going to get people really working hard. It's compelling and interesting if you leverage it right. Get with a good branding and marketing team, people that complement your lack of, um, lack of awareness of how to put yourself out there in a compelling, interesting way. So another really good message for folks out there. And then just go to work. Be really good at these basic things. Like go walk, go back watching your your dreams of sushi, and like you were just making sticky rice, getting good fish, cutting it the right way, and just doing it right every single day. Like we're 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 absolutely meticulous on the details and doing it the right way. And it doesn't have to be more than that. And I don't have to be something else that I can't be. And I have to know what's really the bottom line. They have objective data to say apples to apples. What we do is better. It just flat out is. And I sent you a whole presentation on. Hey, we have a whole bunch of data to say that we're really good at our job. And we have that social proof because you have a bunch of people coming in saying we love this place. So we have a bunch of different metrics and data points. But the bottom line, it really comes down to what do you need to do? What equipment do you need to get to get what equipment do you need to do, have to get to you there? And then the final thing is just really work really, really hard. This isn't exclusive to the private sector. I think we learned this in collegiate strength and conditioning, professional strength and conditioning as well, maximizing our space when we're ordering equipment, you know, getting a piece of equipment that does one thing isn't as useful as sometimes even open space or on the other side, having, like you said, barbells, dumbbells, kettlebells, you can do a million exercises with them. Yeah. And it's, uh, it is extremely valuable to think that way. I can hear that for that yeah. coming out of the college side and then into the private sector, you have to think that way. Yeah. And it, you know, it's an interesting point. So selectorized machines, I was like, we don't need them. We won't need them. Right. Going back to coach Boyle talking about like, you know, it's the biggest waste of space you can get. And then you get two things, two data points, like, right. So we're going to do vertical pulls every single workout two of our, our training program, right? It's going to be our A1. We're always going to open up with that because it's a big flagship thing. Usually I say people, it's never going to be problematic within front of their body, right? They come to me saying, I've been training for 10 years. I know what I'm doing. They're probably really good with everything in front of their body, right? They're structurally imbalanced. They have very poor upper back strength, vertical pulling strength. They have very poor knee dominant and hip dominant posterior chain. So automatically, 
you know, it's a pretty low hanging fruit to improve pull-ups, right? Like, right. Like they don't do it. They're not really focusing on it. Like I can show value to this person immediately until you get to that point where, you know, let's do a pull-up assessment on you. You know, we're just going to do an open set with a 3-0 XO tempo. Just get as many reps as you can with a three countdown. And they can't even do one. They can't even pull themselves one inch. Where do you go from there, right? Let's say that they're 1% to wherever they want to be. Okay, I could do a boatload of eccentrics. I can maybe do isometrics. Maybe I go ahead and break out a way to accommodate that resistance with a band. I just don't love that. But either way, maybe that's an option. Or maybe I need to invest in a simple lap pull down, right? And just go, okay, this is a great way to close the gap and progressively overload. So I can still get a vertical pull and I could do that in a way. And maybe I want to get an adjustable one. So it's not necessarily a true selectorized single function machine. And then you, a couple of years later, go, okay, like we have, we're seeing a lot of people with back pain, very common in general populations, very common in general. Okay, like, okay, improving posterior chain strength, structural balance, posture, flexibility, mobility, control at that range, movement pattern, all this stuff, right? And then you start to look at it like, Man, 90% of my posterior chain development is hip dominant because I can more readily progressively overload it, right? So my options for knee dominant are probably like a hip bridge, maybe a slide leg curl, maybe a fizzy ball, or what we do a foam roll leg curl. Okay, is that going to create enough tension or or actually progressive overload? And what are options to progressively overload that? Like I can add more time under tension. I could add more reps. Maybe I could throw a band around their heels and get a little bit low that way. But, you know, that kind of looks like in there and then maybe i want to get them to a nordic right and then i go okay i'm gonna invest and get in a nord board from vault and i'm gonna say hey i just want to see where we're at here and you can see everyone with back pain has really really low scores relatively speaking right from a force output like that's interesting and then we look at it from this we have these two tiered programs one being body weight kettlebell dumbbell focus the other one using barbells and velocity based training and everything we can see the massive difference between the two right we can see that class that we're doing and that structure we're doing barbell focus we can do more more higher level exercises like Nordics and glued hands and all these other exercises that would just be way too much for that 55 year old person who's just getting introduced to strength training and we're, we're still trying to work our way through like a physio ball leg curl. But we see that person on a Nordic test, a couple hundred newtons of force versus that person in our higher level class putting up five, 600 newtons of force. I'm like, okay, there's, there's the gap, right? And the, what would I do to close that gap? I can't really make much ed, like headway with just body weight stuff, maybe I need to get a, a selectorized suit or prone leg curl or a seated leg curl to kind of help close that gap. And we see this a lot with our one-on-ones. It's we're just not making much progress with Nordics with just the body weight oriented exercise. And there comes the gap, there comes the bottleneck, right? Like, all right, I'm gonna hinge, hinge, pull or squat, push and pull. I'm gonna do that till the cows come home, until I can't. And I could load up bench, I can load up squat, shoot, I can load up the hinge, but I can't really get much really that closing the gap for a vertical pulling or even our, our knee dominant posterior chain. So there's that opportunity to go, okay, well, maybe there's a need there, right? Then maybe I should invest in actually getting a supine leg curl or a prone leg curl or seated leg curl. Maybe I should get a lat pull down or some sort of thing where I can vertically pull and progressively overload that. And then make this crazy investment and get one, six of those stations. Like there's only so much I can do, but it's a good thing to think about in terms of that's the reason why I bought those machines for each one of my facilities, which costs money and takes up space. But there was a direct need based off of what we don't have within our programming. So I know my shortcomings of the program really well because I have testing and data to say, like, you're not really doing a great job here, which is great. More reason to go invest money into that or find ways to make better programming and better exercise decisions to get that gap closed. 
so we can serve our clients at a higher level, keeping them safe and getting great results. The technology and data, you know, I'm hearing a lot of the testing that you do, and there's probably a lot of people out there thinking, why do I need to take it to that level to work with general population, former athletes, uh, you know, people working in office buildings, you know, if we're, if we're doing this for function and they're not performing at a high level from an athletic perspective, you know, why do they need that level of, I don't want to say service or care, but more that level of depth in the analysis and, uh, yeah, sports science in the private sector. Where do you come in on that? So I want to open with, this is from bald. We have the more, most data entries of any entity in the world. This is from them across Forstack, Nordboard, and Dynamo, which is Forstack's their force plates, jump analysis. Their Nordboard is their Nordic hamstring analysis, which you can do like eccentric, isometric, as well as um, the Dynamo, which is grip and a kilometer and a actual dynamic measurement. We just do grip, grip squeeze on that. But we have the most data entries of any, any organization in the world, which is pretty cool. And why that would be relevant to someone, and this is for me, I have a lot of mediums, meaning that I have 30 coaches working between my three facilities. I can't see everything and I can't be there for everything. And what happens, you know, even something like we do a functional movement screen with probably at least 50 to 75% of our clientele, there's still going to be some, some iterator reliability issues. So the more things I can pull the human error element away from and have more objectivity and more of, you know, just basically hardware, software kind of interpreting that, the better. And same thing why we have velocity-based training. The same thing why I pivoted away from skin calipers and went to body metrics, which is an ultrasound body composition analyzer. The more things I could take away from that coach making a subjective or arbitrary decision in that moment, I found it pulled the pressure off of them because we are in a difficult situation of having a program that we don't let everyone into. And the truth is, is we get more money for that. Like we make, we charge more because you have more opportunity to go to more of our actual training up training sessions versus the lower level class, which we find any kind of underlying risk. We try to say it as objective as possible using our hardware software, making those decisions. Like I didn't make that decision, Force Tech did. I didn't make that decision, the screen did. And I could put that on our coaches and say, don't worry about telling someone no, just say these objective data points said we shouldn't do that. And you have the benefit that it's either really reliable or very valid. And you don't have to worry about all that hard work of telling a 45 year old person that's making a million dollars a year that is pretty headstrong and saying, you just started in this. Who are you to tell me I can't go to that class? Because it's now like, was this like a reverse psychology thing? Like, no, it's just a high risk thing. We rely on these tests and screens to make these decisions with young coaches or old coaches or coaches with their perspectives and opinions. Like, that's great. The more of those, the better. But the truth of the matter is we have this very, very important note that we renewed, moved human error. The other part is I find this when we do wellness. I call them the, the self-fulfilling prophecy wellness trackers, right? They put fives on a, on a scale of one to five, five being good, one being bad across the one. I'm like, you put that every single day. Is that how you want to feel? Or is that how you actually feel? And they kind of give me this smirk of like, that's how I'd like to feel. Right. And like, they don't give you that. And then there too, we track sleep quantity on there as well. And if they don't put sleep quantity, I tell them that's all I need to know. It's probably sub five if it's, they don't record it. 
right? No one wants to tell you if it's sub six that they didn't get enough sleep, right? So they're just going to put nothing. Like, so that's a metric in itself. When they always put fives and don't put sleep, I see all these cool indicators of like, all right, let me get you on the fourth deck because I really want to see what that comparison is. And you see maybe like a five to 10% drop. Like, okay, well, what's your plan with this fatigue? And like, ah, you know, I just, I, I know once I get warmed up, I'll be feeling great. Okay, well, we got bar speed to test it because we got gym aware on every single one. And then we put like 75% on there and we're going to hit it for eight. And then maybe the bar speed should be 0.3 to 0.4 meters per second. And all of a sudden it's like 0.26, 0.23, like stop racket. We got to go down and wait, or we may need to stop altogether. And again, it's all these things of I have so many members, so many coaches, and there's so many decisions going on at all times. I just want to lean in on these tools to help us make the right decision across the board and saying, you're not making that decision. You're using our tools to make that decision. All you are is a person to translate that or convey why that's important to uphold that. Because if they don't, they're going to get hurt. If they don't, they're going to have crappy technique and not get the results that we want. If they don't, they'll stop coming. And that's the other part for me. It's like, I can see the ultimate true north of whether we're using our tools effectively. If I see our attendance is three times a week per client, every single week of every single year. And that to me is why we use all these things. Cause we just do have, like, we have so many elements that we're trying to account for and so many things that we're trying to figure out. And there's, I don't want to dumb down our program. I don't want to remove the nuance. I don't want to remove the variables that make this thing special. But I do know the more things that we have to account for, the more things we have to hold ourselves accountable. That's a really good line, by the way. I think I just said that. Made it up. <laughs> we'll, we'll frame that up as an episode. Yeah, for, yeah. For you. <laughs> the, uh, you know, the consistency factor, you know, that's something with the private sector. I think we all know that consistency is key. You have to be consistent to be healthy, to be strong, to be fit. Uh, but using that as really your indicator of success, that differentiates from how we maybe think of college football or college sports where training is the vehicle to get to game day. Whereas essentially performance for these folks is consistency with the program over the course of the year, over multiple multiple years, and being part of that training mesocycle, macrocycle over time. Uh, I think that's really interesting. And, and I heard that consistency element come through a few different times there, which really isn't different than what, you, what you'd go for with traditional personal training. We want continuity of training. Mm -hmm. uh, and some other things I heard in there, technology and assessment force multiplier for you. You can't see everything. It's an objectivity tool. It gives you the ability to make decisions a little bit more clear. And we all know in this field that there's a lot, there's a lot of foggy conversations and numbers and data that, that we don't know which way to go with all the time. Um, it's also a conversation tool. You were talking and basically explaining why you're doing this or why you're why you're making a decision. And that's one thing when we're implementing technology, I think gets overlooked a lot is it truly is a communication tool from the time someone's using a tablet attached to a squat rack or the conversation with the coach afterwards or think about wearables, you know, 
getting in tune with their watches, their phones, all the technology they have access to. So maybe we have a responsibility as strength coaches now to help our clients, help our athletes be better with data and information, especially in the world today. Yeah. You know, it's, so it's, I guess there's always these like logistic problems that you never really perceive. Right. So when you add some layer, you have something else that you aren't considering considering. So for instance, I love vault. I love their hardware. Their dashboard is great, but there's not really a great interface between our backend dashboard and the athlete or client, right? There's not a great medium there. And we're trying to work out with the training software we use bridge, which is also great. So individually they're amazing, but there's no connectivity. There's no communication between the two. So our customer or our athlete really is running blind on these assessments. And we have to work really hard to just justify it constantly. Like, I know that you don't see this, but this helps us make better decisions. And that they're like, I'll just be a little nice to know how I'm doing. So one of the things that we talk about, and this is like actually accidental, like where it wasn't really this like amazing response, but hey, when they're done with their force jump or their force stack jumping with the counter movement jumps, where we're doing three jumps, on a specific workout every single week. So they're trying, we're trying to get one jump assessment with them every single week. So all of our clients come in, we're gonna do a jump on this day, we're gonna do a Nordic on this day, we're gonna do a grip test on this day, is when they're done, just tell them their best result from a jump height perspective. Tell them their best result from a Nordic hamstring force output. Tell them their best result from a grip testing. Okay, we can go the medium, we can go the average, we can go through RSI impulse, that's all great stuff. But the other part for us is we are now putting the onus and responsibility for them to put that into their bridge, right? So we just created a separate category, testing, four stack, highest jump recorded, 36.3 centimeters. And then go back to their tracking and look at that comparatively speaking, and they can look through the previous weeks. Oh, shoot, last week I was 39. The week before that, I was 41. Okay, so what does that mean from a loading perspective today? It might mean just, hey, like I wasn't really into it today and I didn't really want to jump that hard. Or maybe your cns is fried because you've gone back to back days and we really don't have much juice in the tank what i would tell you is this we're going to squat and we're going to do seven 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 five 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 when you get to that second third set take a look at your bar speed if that bar speed is dropping below maybe 0.3 maybe it's too heavy or maybe we need to adjust or get a little bit more rest in between or maybe we need to cut a set when we start to see that they start to make mental notes and associating with their week to week performance, or maybe they go, shoot, last week I was down. Can I retest? Why? Because you didn't really give great effort. Yeah, to be honest. Okay, let me get you back on there. Let's see what you got. And they go out there and they test like, shoot, that's what I want. Like, okay, great. Keep going. Or is it going to be another end of like, hey, maybe we need to cut a set or maybe we need to get more rest or maybe go down and wait. Like, or maybe we just need to do another exercise today. And those are the things that like, we now have more connectivity to them and they have more communication to us on what's going on with them and to be able to push through and hopefully make every session amazing. Let's shift gears. We got strength deficit. You came out with this book, uh, this year, this past year, we just, just shifting gears into 2023 mm -hmm. and, uh, talking about eccentric concentric strength ratios Give us a breakdown. What is strength deficit? Why is this important for strength and conditioning coaches to understand? So quick backstory. I was at Army West Point as the head strength coach over football. We sucked. We were really bad. Um, I think we went 
four and eight our first year, two and 10 are our second year with two FCS losses to Yale and Fordham, which not good for job security, as we like to say in the industry. So I think I kind of hit this head of like, we need to kind of shift gears. And we were really into the idea of a, a, a multi-year program, right? So we had multiple levels. We call them elite, alpha, bravo, and development, right? So E, A, B, D, C, A, B, C, D, right? And each year we're focusing on a different thing. Like development was all about just creating a foundation, blah, blah, blah. Where the idea was elite was going to move into this like SPP type of programming, right? Like we're just going to put it all out there. And, you know, constantly hearing back from our coaches, like, you know, our, our defensive backs can't turn their hips or our wide receivers aren't really good in you know, breaking or turning to change direction or running routes. Like, okay, well, what would we do if like we just focus on this very football specific workout? Like, and the idea too, for me, really got me outside of my comfort zone of like, we don't have the skills player that we did at USC or Georgia Tech, right? We have tough, hard nosed, run through a brick wall type of guy. But the truth is they were just not very skilled because if we were way better at football, they would probably be at USC and Georgia Tech. The reality is we got these hard nosed, tough guys who would run through a brick wall, do everything you asked them to do, probably weren't very skilled or very talented. So we try to like bridge the gap a little bit. And then obviously all these like these like touch points of like go to a Poliquin seminar and he's like, ah, there's this idea of strength deficit with track and field athletes and just kind of left it in passing. Go to an Altus seminar. Stu McMillan talked about how he trains these guys based off the Charlie Francis model of like long to short, short to long. Long to short guys are going to be these really, really concentrically oriented guys. And then thinking Ben Johnson. And then these short to long guys are going to be these really eccentric pers personalities or archetypes thinking like Usain Bolt. And like, hey, Stu, why'd you come up with that? He's like, ah, it just seems to work really well for that progression. You know, like, and I really based it off this thing of if I push, if I asked you what your favorite exercise is, and you tell me if it's a push, like a squat, you're probably going to be a long to short, a very concentric body type like myself. You're really good. at Then you're like, oh, yeah, shoot, I could actually agree with that. Like, I'm really good at squatting and I probably way better acceleration. But you ask me to do any wicket runs or top end speed stuff. I just look awful, right? Like, OK, cool. Good to know there. On the other end, he's like, if someone was really good at deadlifts, they would say, all right, probably a really good short to long, like a same bolt, like a long lever. And you think about it from a snatch to clean and jerk perspective, like who's the best snatchers, the long skinny guys that are just a great lever. You think about the guys who are best at clean, like the short squatty guys, like, okay, a lot of stuff tying in. And then we were going back to a Poliquin seminar. I was like, hey, I kind of want to touch base on that, that idea of strength deficit. You could tell Charles was very short tempered and like just very impatient with people. He's like, just what you would do with a track athlete. Like if I have a shot putter, I'm going to shrink the deficit. If I'm going to have a, a, a hundred meter sprinter, I'm going to increase the deficit. Like, okay, boom, I'm going to go from there and think about what archetypes we have. And I was going back through all the things I have, like Joe Ken's strength coach's playbook, every other book out there, like a prolipin chart, anything you could look at. And I'm like, you know what? I think we really need to do here for this SPP type of programming is to focus on things that increase the deficit for our perimeter athletes. And then think about things about shrinking the deficit. And we're looking at our catapult, like our dis our actual skill guys are running five to seven miles in the course of a practice. And then having to do full on 60 meter sprints on like kickoff and running routes and like, wow, that's a lot of actual mileage here, right? So we're almost training these kind of like pentathlon type athletes who have to do a, a 1600 meter and a hundred meter, right? And then we have these, really cows that we're looking at from staying in one area, grazing grass, not really moving a whole lot, but doing a lot of short intensity sprints. So we're increasing capacity in a couple of different ways, but it stemmed from like, what would that look like from a programming perspective? Let me get with the defensive backs coach. Let me get with the offensive line coach. Let me talk to our staff here. That's really has a large pedigree in football and maybe just 
programming and train training. And so we just created this program. And what I really thought back to, and this is where it really got real for me, Eric, was when I program for football, you're always thinking about this team versus specific program. And you're thinking group dynamics or doing what's like this very high specialized program. And it's a matter of your confident. And I felt really confident and trust with our athletes at Army. So maybe this is a very unique place I could do this, but I'm not worried about controlling the room. They're going to tell, I'm going to say something to do and they're going to do it, especially if I could justify and explain it. So what it really came down to, if like, if I can remove that constraint off of, we got to do a unified program because I can't control the room otherwise, what would I do? And I'm like, well, maybe I'll break up here entirely. So maybe I'll just send the skill guys out in the field and they'll do, you know, top end speed with one of our coaches or two of our coaches out there. And maybe I'll take the big guys in there. And we'll just do a strongman circuit and we'll just, we'll just see what happens. So I can control one, like me and 50 guys, cause I can trust them. And I could control one and 50 guys cause I could trust them. We could divide the program and I'm not programming to lowest common denominator, right? You're thinking about when I do stuff outside, can my offensive linemen do bounding and depth jumps and, and reactionary agility and small set of games? Probably not. It would look like crap, but it's probably high risk. So what do I do? I just simplify our plyometrics and our speed progressions to fit what they can do. And when we get in the weight room, you're thinking about, ah, I'm probably only going to really do so much because our skill guys are going to get really disinterested and bored. And I'm not trying to sit there and say that skill guys don't care about the weight room. But what you realize is like either I'm programming up to someone or programming down to someone. And when you do a group dynamic, you have to program down to someone. When I divided the group up into inside and outside or front seven and perimeter, I started programming up and I started to look at what would I do if I had a skill guy, wide receivers, DBs and our slots together. And what would I do if I just had offensive, defensive linemen, tight ends, fullbacks and linebackers together? How would that look? And I started to really start thinking about, man, shoot, maybe I could start to break out of common any resistance or weight release hooks or strongman or short-sided games and small-sided games and all these different things. Like I'll do a higher level plyometric stuff. And how would that, how would I test if I'm actually doing a good job on this? Like, what would I actually, how, how could I objectively say this was good or not, relatively speaking to previous years? And we started, you know, what would be a difference between, you know, an inside versus outside the box type of program? Well, maybe we could look at counter movement jump versus non-counter movement jump. Like, there's a quick, easy thing that I could do on a daily basis if I wanted to, that makes sense, it's intuitive. One, I use the stretch shortening cycle, the other one I don't. And when I start to look at the two, if I'm doing a good job for the inside the box guys, I should see a corresponding improvement with non-counter movement jump versus if I'm doing a really good job for the outside the box guys, I should see a really good, and sometimes referred to as squat jump. So I go through a lot in that book, like terminology SJ versus NCMJ. But the other one is looking at it from counter movement perspective, because I can use the stretch shortening cycle and I can see a shorter amortization. I can see all these things. It's reflection of just having program that's increasing eccentric strength versus concentric strength. Um, and then one last touch point here, the other thing where I really try to do, this was for me too, of looking at like a 40 yard dash testing, right? And we always see when you test 40 yard dash test is improvement, right? When you just have a good strength, strength conditioning program. If you're, if you're good and you're not, people are training hard and they're not getting hurt, blah, blah, blah. But where do you see that improvement? And one of the things that we found at USC when we did a 10, 20 and 40 yard, 40, 40 yard split was 90% of our improvement happened in the first 10 or 20. Very little improvement in the back end. And I'll tell you this, it, it created this like conversation of, do we just stop testing the 40 and just do a 20? You know, what's the risk versus, well, why aren't we improving on the back end? And is that completely irrelevant? 
Like, and I didn't think it was, but I was like, it kind of makes sense. It was hard to argue at the time. But then looking at strength deficit type programming and committing to doing a 40-yard dash assessment and saying, wow, the people that we increased the deficit for, the ones that we did bounding and a lot of eccentric overloading and complexes, et cetera, et cetera, they had a lot more improvement on the back end. And it justified looking at things from build-up runs and wicket runs and, and flying 40s and things that were more front side and more lift and less time on the ground and shorter ground contact times, relatively speaking, versus, you know, these battering rams that we have for offensive and defensive linemen that could spend more time on the ground. I want them to prove in the first 20. But again, we program to the lowest common denominator. I'm not going to do flying 40s and wicket runs with a 310-pound guy. It's just not worth the risk. You know, so I look at that from programming down again, man. Like, so it's a lot of reflection, a lot of like, shoot, man, like, am I the product of just looking to control everything or do I really want to write the best program? And I don't even have the luxury of, of not being able to write a better program because we sucked. Like we, we had to be better. And I would always talk about with my staff, like, you know, we always talk about like, are we really contributing here? Are we really making a difference? Is it like marginal? Like, you know, USC, is it just a matter of like, trying to get them to game day with their shoes tied and on time, like as Coach Ogeron would tell me, like just point them in the right direction, get their shoes tied and just get out of the way. Or is that at Army where, shoot, we lost to two FCS teams and we're really bad. How do we close this gap? This is our opportunity to actually make a dent and start to think about what we do actually matters. If we want to say anything, we want to contribute, if we want to be value, this is the place to do it. So let's really get outside the box here and start to think about this. And it worked. You know, I mean, we have the we have the evidence to show that it worked, but I knew before that we were in a really good spot and where it really manifested. I think there's like these always like moments and granted, it's all hindsight. But when I'm in this like in season mode and we see guys just crushing in season workouts, and we went to like a default like team structure where there's like non travel travel we might adjust from injuries or perspective. And we just see these guys crushing everything. I mean, there was like a moment where I see like 30 guys hand cleaning 120 kilos for doubles. And I'm like, in like everyone, there was like 30 guys down the room. Like we had this long 60 yard weight room with about 30 racks going down the weight room. And it's like, holy crap. Like, like this didn't happen on accident. Like we're really strong and they're really, really, really tough. And there was like an element of like, this is that, that convergence of really good training and really good kids and just pushing the boundaries of performance. And, and then I was like, after the fact, when it came out here and I was like, wow, that was like lightning in a bottle, whether it was our staff, whether it was the kids or just the programming. And I just kind of wanted to like almost a memoir, so to speak of that experience. So it's a little bit of a chronicling that, and then kind of looking at really what we're just talking about with our gen pop. It's the same fundamental thing of like, you gotta, you gotta figure out what you need to do to get the job done and you have to test. And you have to objectively evaluate that and you got to know and I got to pivot fast and I talk about that within the book and actually came out with the course as well It's like. You have to know when it's not working just as much as you know when it is working and if i'm doing ongoing testing and I see either we have this fatigue response okay great like maybe it's something is working positively versus if I see a fatigue response from just being stupid and not doing good programming I got to pivot. And you got to communicate with your staff and athletes about like, do you feel better? Is it working? Like, do you think things are going? And they got to give you feedback. And you just got to get a lot of data inputs to make sure that you're going in the right direction, especially when you're going into the unknown. Yeah, man, I that love the uh, I love the passion, <laughs> man. And it's always a deep dive in the programming when when we talk the, you know, going back 
to what you started with. And it was, you know, the outside the box guys, the inside the box guys. And I'm thinking of the footwork linemen need to master from a position specific standpoint and developing those skills. And I really liked how your approach at that time was get the position coaches involved and testament to you at a military academy, anyone who knows that environment, splitting the group up, it can be a challenge. A lot of times at military academies, players' schedules are pretty restricted. Yeah. Yeah. Eric, we're going, and so you were talking about too, of looking at consistency. You know, one of the things that we really leaned in on that last year was we only had a six week summer and that was kind of like the point where we really leaned in on that sports specialization programming. I asked them like, what do we want this summer? And did a whole pre-mortem like, we need to get faster. We need to get bigger. You know, we need to get better on the field. And I was like, well, okay, let's look at some limiting factors. And I was like, Hey, look, if I have an idea of going to a day training, and I want to put the caveat on there. It's a lot more stress. If you're a guy who chronically shows up late, which for, for context, Army is not, not this place that everyone's going to be on time and perfect. They're going to screw up their kids, right? If you're a guy who struggles to be on time anywhere or struggles to stay focused, we are now doubling our inputs. So if you're a guy who shows up late for one workout a day, you're probably going to show up late twice. So we're going to double everything. On the other end, though, it's maybe we can get better work in allocated periods of time. Maybe if we need to get bigger, I can give you better, peri, more peri-workout nutrition. So now I can control not just three pre intra post, I can control six inputs per day. Maybe I don't have to start to think about from a logistics standpoint, like, damn, man, I got to do speed, Olympic lift, strength work. I can just focus on one and we could be really good here and I can really take my time. Hey, we got to walk through that. Let's get you some video feedback. Let's really process what we're doing here. And we decided to, hey, we're going to go two-a-day training. And it's everyone's going to be fired up for it the first week, but I'll tell you when it's going to hit ahead is week two, week three, week four, because now it's getting old. And now you got to get up here, get dressed now eight times a week, as opposed to just before four times a week. And that's a lot. Are we ready for that? And I'm going to call you on that when we get to that point. And they rose to the challenge. So again, another little variable that I probably couldn't do everywhere, but... Man, I'll be damned. That was another big thing for us. We can really lean in on the, I can go outside. We're going to stay outside. I'm not worried about going in. I'm not worried about losing transition time. I'm not worried about anything else. We're just going to focus on top end speed and the movement prep to get us there. Yeah. You talk about the performance elements of muscle contraction, the protective elements of muscle contraction, and how to optimize that, individualize it, so to speak, to the groups in a team setting, a large football team setting. Um, lots to unpack in that book, but I like how you have, uh, some good examples in there. You have training cards, uh, just, just plenty of takeaways for, uh, for readers as they dive in, because there is a lot of depth. So you did a great job with that. Um, Thank you. but this is awesome, man. I really enjoy talking to you. Uh, it's, it's cool to see what you've done transitioning from, college football from college sports, the, the traditional model of strength and conditioning and taking it to a new area. Uh, we have, I would say the private sector in general is growing quite a bit in a lot of different areas. And this is one that you don't really hear about all the time. So Tim, thanks for being with us. Yeah, man. Um, and what, if you're okay, if I can just have one like closing remark, um, I, I've been going to a lot of seminars over my career and I don't know how you feel about this, Eric, or if you felt this way, but you go in there and you always have this like 
and it's like the the pts of the world the um the movement specialists of the world the 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 folks who work in the private sector uh they always kind of like just go out guns blazing about kind of like going out, out like saying if i had college strength conditioning athletes or if i was in that situation what i would do or like just kind of like cherry picking, you know, maybe some coaches out there that, you know, whatever, they're not the best in the world of programming or doing things like that, but they're just kind of like typecasting us and they're putting a negative spin on us. And I felt like that was like, I'm tired of that. Yeah, there's some circumstances that are hard, then we have to figure it out. And some of the folks that you probably think are the worst are the best with people and the best at communicating and the best at organizing and the best at motivating. Their skill sets are not tied in. And here's a, here's a spoiler alert. That's what they're asked to do. Right. So you can go ahead and say, oh, man, that guy's awful or that or this and the other. They're doing their job better than anyone else in the world because that was what they were hired for. And you could argue maybe they could do a little bit better job in certain areas. You're not in their shoes. You don't know that role. So with everything that I'm doing from my website, my book, my podcast, my private sector, it's starting to hopefully fight that narrative change that, yes, college trained coaches can all improve. They all can improve. Team setting strength coaches can all improve, but they're pretty darn good. And let's stop going to seminars and kind of like, I feel like I'm a masochist when I go to these seminars of like, I'm the worst coach in the world. I'm part of this group that has no idea what we're doing. And we're just being a bad embodiment of that. Like, no, because I telling you right now, Eric, the coaches that I know and the coaches that I talk to, like yourself and everyone else out there, they are really good and they're better than everyone else out there. They're just not putting it out there at the level some other people are. So I'm super stoked on all the coaches that are kind of getting outside of their comfort zone, putting themselves out there in a high level because they're special, man. And, you know, the folks that I've worked with in the team setting, the folks that I work with and constantly communicate with, like, you'd be shocked by how smart, intelligent and talented and skilled they are. And if they went into a situation like I am competing against another gym down the road, Good luck to that other gym because you have no idea what this person is capable of and how willing they are to do something for someone else and how much they can do something for someone else relatively speaking to them. So I want to champion that message to the strength coach out there. Yeah, coaches are always being tested, I think, in this profession. We're tested from our head coaches at times. We're tested by social media, what we see. Uh, sometimes we even test ourselves or, you know, we're our own biggest critics. And uh, I think a message of coming together and continue to elevate our profession, elevate ourselves. And there's a lot that one thing I've learned in this job is as many coaches as I get to meet, there are thousands more out there that are phenomenal at what they do. And uh, probably one of the coolest parts of this job is getting to see people in action and, and just be like, wow, you, I've never seen someone do that before. And, um, you know, just see people light up when, when you see something that I think sometimes we don't even realize the things we do well. So elevating ourselves and building our confidence as professionals, we're still a young profession and we have a long way to go, but we're going to get there. Um, but Tim, thanks for being with us, everyone listening in. We appreciate you. And thanks to Sorenex Exercise Equipment. We appreciate their support. Hey, everyone. I'm Dr. Tim Sokomel, the chair of the NSCA Sports Science and Performance Technology Special Interest Group. And you just heard an episode of the NSCA Coaching Podcast. This show brings about excellent discussion right to the core of the NSCA's mission to bridge the gap between scientific research and application. 
If you want to learn more about the many advancements in the areas relevant to today's practitioners, subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. Also join the discussion in the NSCA Sports Science and Performance Technology SIG on Facebook. Go to nsca.com for more information. This was the NSCA's coaching podcast. The National Strength and Conditioning Association was founded in 1978 by strength and conditioning coaches to share information, resources, and help advance the profession. Serving coaches for over 40 years, the NSCA is the trusted source for strength and conditioning professionals. Be sure to join us next time.